Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, greetings and welcome to today's meeting at the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Bill Grant, a member of the club's health and member-led forum and chair of this program. And now it is my special pleasure to introduce today's uh, distinguished speaker, Dr. Michael uh, Merzenich. Our speaker is an international authority on the science of brain plasticity. Dr. Merzenich led a research and development team at the University of California in San Diego that created one of the first practical models of the modern cochlear implant. In parallel, his team of scientists, medical specialists, and engineers have made many contributions to our understanding of the functional organization of the brain and its lifelong capacity to, uh, to plas- plasticity and functionally revise itself by use. He's going to educate us today uh, about what he calls the brain plasticity revolution, explaining how this science is gaining traction in clinical medicine and how it could and should be exploited in your life. Merzenich is an author of more than 300 peer-reviewed research reports and has been awarded more than 60 U.S. patents. A member of the U.S. National Academies of Science and Medicine, he's received many awards and distinctions for his work, including the biennial Russ Prize for the Most Important Medical Engineering Achievement and the biennial Kavli Prize, one of the most important international awards in brain science, acknowledging his team's seminal contribution to the science of brain plasticity. Dr. Merzenich. Uh, thank you, Bill. I just want to make one small correction, and that is that it was the University of California at San Francisco, not San Diego. Right. Where, where it was a great privilege to be a faculty member of for many years. So, first of all, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun for me to be here. I'm, I've been a long-time advocate of the Commonwealth Club. I can't tell you how many podcasts of the Commonwealth Club I've listened to myself, and it's been a source of education to me, and I hope this this hour is a source of education to you. Uh, we've designed this hour to be conversational. I'm on it. So I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so we're going to, I'm going to talk to you relatively briefly, and then we're going, to, we're going to open it up for conversation. And I hope you'll all get a chance, or many of you will get a chance to answer a question that might come to mind or might be in your mind as you came in the door. Now, when's the last time you went to the doctor? You probably went to the doctor for your some regular exam or maybe an irregular exam. And the doctor said, uh, well, uh, Mary, or maybe Bill, how are you doing? And you said, oh, I guess I'm doing okay. Well, you just had your annual brain exam. Because there's no real brain medicine. <laughs> medicine of the brain is all about disaster. You know, wait until basically you're, 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 you're losing it, you're, you've lost your way, you can't really function, you're in real trouble, and then you're given a label, and that label basically sets a doctor up for setting you up for a course of treatment if there is one. Now, isn't it interesting that in, for all of the other organs that we understand are actually orga- organs, that there's an issue of health, an ongoing issue of health? Isn't it interesting that when a kid goes to school... They're required to have a physical. But where's the brain exam? And what's more important to the kid and that they're getting off to a good start in school? I mean, school is all about engaging their brain. And surely there's a variation in the health of the organ of the kids that show up in the schoolhouse door. And in fact, there is. Enormous variation in the status of the machinery that shows up in the school of those kids that show up that will make a big difference in their success and the development of their own self-appraisal 
of how they're doing in life and how they will do in life and what they will become in life that can be devastating to them. But why don't we manage brain health? Why aren't we paying any attention to it? Why aren't we, every time you go to the doctor, why isn't somebody taking a look at it in general and in, in a sense giving you a grade and if you fail on any level, doing something about it to increase your resilience or increase your powers? One of the reasons for that is that in the earlier part of the second half of the last century, scientists decided through a series of compelling and misleading experiments that your brain was only plastic when you were little, when you were a baby or a very young infant. And basically across this period, uh, the brain was in fact plastic. You could alter it. You could alter its wiring. It could be changed in functionality substantially in those first years of life. But across this period of time, the brain grew up. And unlike your other organs, basically your brain reached essentially an adult phase when you're still a child, well before you actually showed up at that schoolhouse door. Its wiring was complete. Most of the neurons in the brain were in place. They had their adult conformation. The brain was almost of an adult size. And the brain was imagined to be hardwired, something like the computer on your desk. And that wiring conferred reliability. That was a good part of it. But it was really hard to explain all of the wonderful things that came out of that skill, out of that machinery in the brain for the rest of life. Because it certainly didn't seem to be standing still. And this view infected how we think, think about the brain in medicine and infected how we think about it in education. The kid could come to school and we could decide on the first day what the kid's potential was in life. Kid would give an exam, we say, this is a smart one. He's really worth our while. And this kid isn't so swift. And we imagine that the kid was stuck with it because the brain was immutable, unchangeable, and alterable. In fact, there was only one real way it could change from that point forward to the time you died, it could go to hell. Okay? And the same in medicine. Over and over again, you have something, some infliction, and in a sense, you feel that you're a victim of it. You're presented as a victim of it. I'm depressed. I have clinical depression. I hope the doctor can save me because I can't. You're a victim of it. Now, when you think about how you think about your physical health, and how you think about it, you understand that to a certain extent in your recovery, you're in charge, you're, a, you're, you're an actor on the scene. Why isn't that so in your brain health? Well, I'm here to tell you that it is. I'm here to tell you that you are an important actor on the scene. Because what happened beginning roughly in the late 1970s forward to the end of this last century and over the first 20 years of this century is a revolution that's occurred that most people still do not fully appreciate or fully understand. And that was the understanding that brain plasticity is not in when you're a baby. The brain, in fact, is continuously plastic. It's the brain's big trick. Quadrillions of moments in the life of your brain, there's a wiring change. And that wiring change has conferred all of the change within your skull that accounts for your generation of the world that you operate in. All of that is constructed in your brain by changing, by physical change in your brain. And all of your operational, all of your refined operational abilities within that brain 
have evolved within you and continue to evolve within you as you operate across life. Your brain is an incredibly wonderful, continuously revisable machine that can change itself, is capable of changing itself continuously to the end of your life. You can ask, well, can the average 80-year-old citizen acquire a new skill? Could she suddenly decide, an 80-year-old woman suddenly decide to take up knitting and become a master knitter? Of course she could. In order to accomplish a skill like that, that would mean she would have to go through a period of progressive brain revision. She'd have to develop a knitting brain. We all have a capacity to change our brain and our operational capacities across the period of a span of our life to the end of our life. Now, the brain is not just created the operational person you are by changing itself as you acquire your skills and abilities. And we know this because we engaged animals initially and later humans to acquire new skills or abilities, and we watched the brain change in front of us. And we could see how the changes in the brain accounted for the acquisition or the progressive improvement of the skill that resulted to mastery. We could see the difference in the brain now changed as it mastered the skill from the difference when it started. So we understand not just this process, we actually understand the rules that control the process. So there's been a massive uh, development of the science which has defined the basic nature of the processes that control change. And from that have come our understanding of the rules that govern change. And the important aspect of that is that knowing the rules, we can control change in the brain at will. Now, one important thing to understand about this change and knowing the rules is that the change is bidirectional. I could take any one of you and I could substantially improve your ability to control manipulation of fingers of your hand or using your hand on the tool. I control your ability to resolve what you hold in your hand. I could improve that dramatically and improve the ability to extract information from things that contact the surface of your hand. Or I still following the rules, but applying them in a different way, I could completely degrade your use of the hand. I could shrink its representation to half the normal territory in the brain. I could turn the hand into a useless claw. Okay? In the same way, I could slow down any one of your brain to a snail's pace. Or I can change, change the following the rules, change the nature of training, and accelerate your operation to give you a high-speed, high-accuracy brain. Change in the brain is, is bidirectional. And we understand enough about the rules that govern it and the process that govern it and the the basis of those rules to be able to control change in an incredibly important series of useful ways. Now, why would we study changing the brain in a negative way? Why is that interesting to us? Well, first of all, it's really interesting to me when we first begin to fully appreciate this to try to understand why the hell the brain is constructed to be driven north or south. And basically what it's doing, I think, it's basically assuring, because it's controlling change on the basis of whether you get the answer right, 
when it makes it, when it gets the answer right consistently, advances its performance characteristics. And it increases its accuracy, it increases its speed, it increases its performance operationally in all kinds of physical ways that you can reconstruct in its uh, physiology. When you begin to make errors, it changes its operational characteristics so you still get the most elemental answer correct. It's really important to know whether, you're, whether there's food in the offing or a tiger in the woods. And basically on that level, the characteristics of the brain can be relaxed under conditions in which you still have a high level of control. It's another way of saying that you can be really in trouble from the point of view of the performance or operational characteristics of your brain, and you can still be getting the big answers right. And that can be a real deception. Because if you are really, given that fact that you might be really in trouble, you might really need to be working on your brain to improve its operational characteristics. So change is bidirectional. Now, one of the reasons we know this is because, also, it's because we ask a very simple question. We look at a brain that's really struggling, and we can make it struggle, struggle in a couple different ways. These original experiments were done in animals, but we've elaborated these experiments in a number of wonderful ways in humans studies. And we could say, well, what is the brain like in, let's say, 30 physical or functional or operational characteristics near the end of life in an animal compared to an animal in the prime of life? When the animal is really cognitively with it, very high performer, very effective and successful in its operations in its world, we can ask the same question about a human brain. What are the differences how many of these 30 things that we might look at in, the, in these experiments, we've looked at about 35 things overall, are different in the animal near the end of life. We've also looked at animals that had great struggles early in life, and we contrasted animals that had early life struggles in the prime of life with animals that had a good early life. We see exactly the same thing. How many of those 30 things advantage the animal that is in the prime of life versus the animal in the end of life? How many of those things advantage the animal that's had a good early life from animals had a terrible early life? All of the advantage goes to the animal with a good life, the animal in the prime of life. 30 for 30. And the differences are big. Now we can ask the question, well, how many of these things are actually reversible? Because plasticity is bidirectional. Can we take an animal that's really struggling or a human that's really struggling, we said they've had a terrible early life, and now as a young adult, can we reverse these negative characteristics, these operational characteristics, these physical differences? Can we take an animal in the, that's near the end of life and, and everything has gone to hell, and can we actually drive these back in the correct direction? How many of these things can we drive back in the correct direction? The answer is all of them. Everything is reversible. 30 for 30. In an animal model, they can, we see that they can be driven back almost all the way, if not all the way, to the physical and functional and performance characteristics of an animal in the prime of life by relatively simple forms of training. And what that training is about primarily is to drive the brain into be a high-resolving, high-speed, highly effective a decision-making operational machine again. You can do that in, a, in, in, in yourself. You can certainly do that in animals at any point in life. 
Now, obviously, brain history and what happens to you in life impacts your brain health. And obviously, we now know that about half the people that rise to young adulthood, when they should be in the prime of life, have never had a healthy brain. Unless something is done for them, never will have one. But brain health is, in fact, is subject to plastic revision. You can engage the brain of an individual at any age. Obviously, we should be doing this early in life. We should be finding every kid that shows up at the schoolhouse door that's doomed to struggle. And we should be helping them. We should be managing their brain health and driving them back into the mainstream health-wise. And then we should be trying to do everything we can to sustain their brain health for the rest of their life. That's what we should be doing. And that's what this science enables us to do. It enables us to drive them correctively in ways that can alter the course or trajectory of their life. I know this sounds a little bit grandiose, but I think we have it within our power now from this science to actually substantially reduce, substantially minimize a long-standing human plague. And that's an underclass that we've created by the way we've organized societies. By finding every kid at a young age who struggles and help them find their way into the mainstream. Every brain is a work in progress. And no one is stuck with the brain they have. And all of us should be thinking about ways in which we can potentially manage our brain health. Now what happens if we don't pay attention to our health? And what happens in the normal trajectory of a life that can lead us into trouble, let's say, on the latter half of life? I want to talk a little bit about that before I stop talking. So generally, if we look at the average citizen in a modern uh, society, and I'm talking now about a Western society, America or Europe, uh, we, we rise in our performance abilities on the average to a, roughly our 30th birthday, somewhere in the neighborhood of the third de decade of life. And, uh, and then we slowly decline. So why do we... Why do we what, what accounts for this rise and decline? Well, one thing is, is that we're in a period early in life in which we're in a period, you could say we're in a continuous period of acquisition and skills and abilities that are, that are defining us. We're educated, we're gradually, our life is full of new physical and functional experiences. And gradually we come to a peak. Uh, we're as fast as our brain is ever going to be on the average. And, and then we slowly decline. And one simple way to measure that decline is by simply measuring the speed of operations of the elemental processes of our brain. We just measure how long it takes for a person, when they see something, to identify what it is they've seen in the neurological process. So you just, uh, you just uh, ask an individual to respond in the same way in the auditory domain or in the somatosensory domain. You just look at processing speed as it applies in the brain. You see that almost everything else you might measure that relates to their elemental, perceptual, or cognitive operations is, is affected in parallel. And the change is substantial. Between your 30th birthday and your, and your 60th birthday, you've moved on the average about a standard deviation across the normal distribution. Well, that's scientific jargon. That means if you are average, an average citizen when you were 30 years of age, 
You're at about the 16th percentile of humankind in your country when you're 60. That's a big difference. By the time you're 90, you're below the 5th percentile. That's a huge difference. And the the decline is relatively continuous. Now, there's some people that are are all across this period of life are, are in a higher speed category. And they're the people that have the strongest resistance against a progression to dementia, a progression to Alzheimer's disease. And they have been described for uh, decades now as having a special asset that, uh, that people lower in the distribution don't have, which is called cognitive reserve. And cognitive reserve is not magical. Cognitive reserve is brain health. That's all it is. Some people have healthier brains than others because of where their brain has been, how they've used it, and how they've driven it in its performance characteristics. There's nothing magical about it. And cognitive reserve is an asset that can be improved, injected at any time by exercising your brain in an appropriate way. And how do you exercise it? Well, you do things in your natural life. You might go to a computer and do brain exercises. There are several ways that you could advance yourself. And basically what you want to do is to drive your performance characteristics to a higher level so that you're operating at higher speed with higher accuracy in everything you do with your brain. And the only way the brain can operate at higher accuracy and higher speed is if all 30 of those things I talked about earlier improve. So in other words, if you just look at how fast your brain is moving in its operations at speed, you have a very good index of brain health, which is also a very good index of your situation in life. Now, one of the things that happens to you in life is that life is full of vicissitudes. It's full of landmines. All kinds of things happen in life. And those things that happen in life rob you of your cognitive reserve. So there are mental illnesses occur, you take medications, you might have a surgical operation and spend a lot of time in recovery in the ICU and, and, I, and struggle a lot. A zillion things can happen to people. There's a, there, there are 50, 60, 70 things that are well documented epidemiologically to accelerate your progression towards dementia. And they accelerate your, your progression because they rob you of, of your brain power, of your brain health. And that, all of those things are a call to action for you. You obviously have to, to uh, you, you could say, take up the weapons and fight it. But guess what? You have the resources within your skull to fight it. You have the resources within you that poor Ponce de Leon struggle around the, the Florida jungle trying so hard to find. You have the power to rejuvenate yourself to a very substantial extent by engaging your brain, by using your brain again to the advantage of your brain. So I know in the, in the discussion, I hope we can talk a little bit about more specifically about exactly how you're going to go about doing that. Now finally, I just want to say a little bit about a second aspect of the brain plasticity revolution that I think is also very important and I hope is food for you, food for thought for you to think about. So for several thousand years now, we humans have argued about our nature. We've argued about where we come from. We've argued about the basis of the person that we are. We've argued about the creation of the self. 
We wonder about where this captain in our little ship comes from and what it, how its operations are defined and what accounts for them. Increasingly, we understand they come out of the processes of our brain. We can see the origin of the self arising from a massive schedule of constructed self-reference. That is to say, every time you feel, every time you think, every time you act, the brain is making an association to the source of the feeling or the thought of the action. Billions of times, that self-reference has led to you. And it's actually created an entity, that's you, yourself, that has the power, becomes so powerful in your brain, it's the brain's most important and most powerful production. It actually generates powers of agency. It actually becomes, takes the helm, it takes control. What a gift. What an amazing thing to come out of a biological process. The brain, by the way, is the most complicated physically complicated machinery in existence on planet Earth. And the notion that the brain has capacity to continuously change itself, yourself, the person that you are, and that this is a lifelong gift, if you don't take advantage of this, and you don't make it go on a mission for continuous self-improvement, you're just a damn fool. I strongly, I strongly encourage you to take up, take up the, uh, the challenge, because we all have the capacity, from this point forward to the rest of your life, to be stronger, to be more effective, to be more powerful, to be safer, every week, every month, from this point forward. Nobody has to stop and fall after age 30 from the peak, on a grade directly to to hell. You know, you can continue to grow. So I think I'm going to stop there, and I think I'm going to invite a few questions. First, I think Bill has some questions, because he's been listening attentively, and I think he's going to try to probably scold me and yell at me a little bit. And then, uh, and then I'll, we'll go from there to questions from you all. Yeah, tomorrow, Gurun will collect uh, cards while we're uh, asking these questions. So, um, Dr. Merzenich, uh, you talked about the rules that control brain plasticity. What are those rules, and how does the brain implement them? Well, Bill, Bill, is, uh, Bill has got my, my name right, pronounced right twice in a row. <laughs> uh, that might be a record. Well, first of all, uh, you, have to be in, you have to be engaged. You, 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 know, you, you could say the brain only changes when you're engaged, when you're attending to what you're up to, when it, when it matters to you. It only changes when it matters to you. It's a simple way to think about it. So you can practice a lot, and in fact, you can practice a lot at almost anything that you can do more or less automatically. You know, people golf, go golfing maybe once or twice a week, and uh, they love it, but they never get better at it because they're satisfied, in a sense, with how they do. And being satisfied with how you do it, if you train an animal, uh, this is an experiment that I did 30 years ago, if you train an animal and you make it very, very easy for them, nothing changes. Why would it change? Right? And then he says, you make it too difficult, nothing changes. Why would it change? It's too frustrating. But if they mostly get it right, but they can always make an error, then things change if it matters to them. And, you, of course, you have to, it has to matter you for a reason. You, wanna, you have to need to get, want to get better at whatever it is you're doing. So it's, 
People talk about living the life of no stress. Well, you, you want a little bit of stress because you want it to matter to you. Right? You want it to be important to you. And that's a positive. That's a positive. That doesn't lead to the, to the stress hormones uh, sending you backward. It's all going forward then. So that's the first rule. The second is, is that the brain basically is working, it's evaluating the effectiveness of any try, anything you're doing, and basically it's, it's, it's advancing after the fact when it judges that try, whatever you're doing, to be a good one. So every little success that you acknowledge, let's say I'm out there, I don't know, playing ping pong, and every time I hit a little better shot or I'm a little, little bit proud and I have that little feeling of pride in my shot, every time that occurs, the brain is changing in a significant level. And you could say it's a function of the magnitude of that reward you feel or that positive thing you feel, the brain is changing. Okay, so you want to be in that kind of mode as much as you can be. And by the way, when you're doing behavior, in your behavior gauge, it's really important to you and it's rewarding to you, whatever it is. I don't know, bird watching, playing ping pong, you know, uh, dancing, doesn't matter. You're in a mode in which you're also exercising machinery of the brain that controls change. So the modulatory control machinery of the brain is engaged when you're attentive, when it's important to you, and when it's rewarding. So try to find a way to get into that mode every damn day. Okay, so there's another, another aspect of it. And the brain loves surprises. One of the most important things that your brain is up to, imagine that we're, 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 we're created to live in this sort of controlled environment where we do everything possible to beat out the surprises. You know, I mean, we're, the weather can't be bad in here, you know, it can't rain, nothing, that really, nothing really very exciting can happen in here. God knows this talk is not that exciting. So the point is, is that we are controlling surprise all the time in our everyday life. And actually, we're, what we're designed to do is we move across the landscape. I don't think of yourself in the jungle or the woods or out in the desert. I don't care. And we're seeking surprise because surprise always has to be weighed. Its valence always has to be weighed by us. It's a key to survival. Is that something that I should be worried about? That's different. That's a surprise. Maybe it's a source of food. Maybe it's a source of danger but I have to give it a balance. So whenever a surprise occurs, the brain basically turns up its lights. You want to exercise the light-turning-up machinery of your brain, right? Because you want your lights on bright. You do not want that dimmer switch turned low. <laughs> and that's really important when you get older, because this machinery, can, the machinery that, that dimmer switch can be real low. You want to work on that. It also relates very directly to how effectively you're sleeping and how, how bright you feel when you get up in the morning. You want to wake up in the morning, you don't want to waste half your day trying to, re to recover consciousness. You want to be alert from the get-go, right? So this is really important. So seek surprise. This is another thing I strongly recommend. And lastly, this, is just, this isn't a rule exactly, but I just want to say this. The brain basically needs to exercise the machinery that controls your joyfulness. I'm going to stand up to say this because it really matters. I'm hooked by it in the chair, though. Surprise. This is a, it's a surprise. This, this is a real joyful moment here. There you go. Okay. Bad belt move there, pal. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
lead a joyful life. Lead a generous life. Put it this way. Every time somebody does something nice for you, the, the machinery in your brain that basically makes you feel joyful and positive is engaged. This is, releases a hormone called do- I mean, a, 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 a called dopamine, and basically exercising your dopamine neurons is really important because if they die off, you get Parkinson's disease. If they die off, you basically life is not joyful, and this is a primary regulator of plasticity itself. Dopamine is released and basically directly drives the brain to change. Right, so. You can't control how often other people are kind to you. But you get exactly the same reward when you express generosity or kindness to someone else. Exactly the same thing happens in your dopamine neurons. And guess what? You can control it. You can reward the crap out of your brain <laughs> and exercise it richly and keep this machinery alive by being a good and generous and positive person. Most people that live a healthy, older life that live a healthy, older, long life, have this characteristic. You don't find a whole lot of really negative old cranks <laughs> in that population. You find people that are generous of spirit. So I strongly recommend that you practice generosity of spirit because it is healthy for your brain. I didn't really answer the question, but what the hell? You know, <laughs> Next question. How about consciousness? Can brain science explain the neurological processes that underlie consciousness? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And uh, and, uh, so I just said, he asked about consciousness, and he said, can you scientists scientists explain consciousness itself? Okay. And and so my answer to that, I think if you ask, uh, uh, you know, 100 scientists, you'd probably get... Uh, several different variations of answers. But my answer is, is that we know a lot of things that correlate with the moment of awareness. So you, if you carry a brain from the moment in which they're not aware to the moment in which they're aware, you can either cross the threshold where they don't sense anything is happening at the time when they do sense it or they don't see something and then they do see it. Or you can carry a brain in, in which the, the person is basically is out, the lights are out, the lights are on. It, there, there are correlated phenomena in the brain that correlate with all of those moments that are interrelated. So in a sense, we can see things happening in the brain that happen when you move from the unconscious to the unconscious state or from the unaware to the aware state. But nobody really knows, to my satisfaction, what the nature of the process is, the physical process, if it is a physical process, exactly. Nobody really has really explained what the process is in any understandable terms, at least I can't, I'm too dumb to understand it, what the light is. So the light still begs understanding. But we see a whole series of things that seem to correlate with the lights going on. So this is one of the great still, I would say, unanswered or unresolved questions in brain science. And uh, I hope that as long, during my lifetime, this would be something we could resolve in one way or another. But still, I see it as an open question. It's a good question. Okay. Dr. Marzenich, you talked about vicissitudes in life right. that degrade your brain health. Right. Um, you mentioned some. What should you do about them uh, when they have been a part of our earlier life or when they arise unexpectedly in our yeah. current lives? 
Well, let's say I'm a young man and I've had a history of, uh, uh, I don't know, fisticuffs or, uh, or violence or uh, I played football or, or soccer. I've been a young woman and I was a soccer player and I, I headed the ball a lot. Or I, you know, A lot of things could happen to you that could relate to, to headbanging. Maybe I've had a history of mental illness in some form. I've had a diagnosed mental illness, and that would be pretty unusual, right? Not. By the time you reach your 65th birthday, the majority of Americans have had a diagnosed mental illness. Abnormal is normal. Things happen to all of us, right? So we imagine that they don't, but they, you imagine this is only me or it's only you. And in fact, all of us have vicissitudes. All of us have things that happen. And in fact, if you go down the list of things that we should be worried about that can lead to our getting in real trouble neurologically, the list is long. Now, uh, some of these things I've tried to describe in my book to to help you uh, have some insight into what you should be worried about. Also, a lot of medicines that we take. I calculated them myself. You know, I'm an old guy, so I take uh, medicine. I don't want to tell you exactly what for. I have the usual (laughs) older age infirmities. But uh, I figured it out. They calculate to about a year. If I did nothing about it, they calculate about a year or, uh, or premature advance to dementia. Medicines. And your doctor won't tell you this. Tell you they, won't t- they don't tell you this. In fact, I've asked my doctor, one of my doctors is a cardiologist. I gave a little bit away one of my issues. And I said, do you know that these medicines have been demonstrated in controlled studies to increase the risk of, of a earlier progression to, to dementia? He said, really? <laughs> well, you still need them. <laughs> no, I have no doubt I do. <laughs> I take the medicine. But every time something like this happens to you in a life, you should take it on as a, as a challenge. You should take it on as a, as, a, uh, as, a, as, as a... You should be motivated to be extra energetic in engaging your brain to try to move it in a healthward direction. Okay, again, there's advices about what you do in my book. You can also think about, you know, I've worked hard in my own scientific life at UCSF to try to build strategies that you could deploy, largely computer-delivered strategies, that, uh, that in which the goal is to try to restore brain health and move you in a brain healthward direction in a relatively efficient way. But there's lots of things you can do in your everyday life that can help you Make sure that you're counterbalancing the losses that occurred from that headbanging or that, that, uh, that psychiatric uh, history or that medical medicine or that whatever. So just pay attention to your brain and pay attention to how you're doing. One of, the, one of the really important things to think about doing is try to develop strategies for self-calibration. Now, a very simple thing you can do is to, to work to assess your brain speed, assess, Let's say how fast and accurately you're operating. Or you could say you want to operate accurately, but at speed. Now, in the training strategies that we've developed, you can easily get a score from those training programs in the software, and you can easily see how you're doing in relation to everyone else of your age. And if you're not at least in the middle of the distribution of humankind, you should be working to improve your speed and accuracy. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. 
You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Or you can just give yourself a self-test. You can say, you can ask your partner to give you some category, any category. You can sit there with a pencil and you can write down as many things in that category as you can within a minute. And if, and if that category is something like, oh, let's say African animals. If you write down 10 in a minute, you're probably okay. If you, if you only get seven or eight, you should get to the brain gym or you should just start doing something. Take up ping pong, do something. Right? Right? But work out strategies to calibrate yourself and then every so often give yourself a check. Again, there are some suggestions in my book about how you go about that. How does brain plasticity science apply for the human workforce? What kinds of skills and abilities are and are not improvable? Well, increasingly, we're, we're, uh, we're applying it to help people on the job. This is an obvious thing to do. So one of my real interests, strong interests, is in helping people that are in uh, police or military. And that's not just because they're in the police or military. It's because the job by its nature is brain damage. If you're a policeman, uh, for all kinds of reasons, policemen are at very high risk. They have a very high stress life. Uh, they, they, They don't live very long. They're, they advance to a dementia at a relatively young age on the average. Same person in the military. Military is very, especially in the combat military, but in the military in general, it's a hazardous job. So basically, they're put under a special burden. But also in performance, you know, one of the things, that, an example is, is that we've conducted studies in which we train policemen to operate to make accurate, fast visual decisions. Well, why would you do that? It's so that they make an accurate decision before they shoot somebody. So we can actually reduce to a fraction of the time that they would make such a tragic mistake by training a person for 15 or 20 hours. We've also trained people that have other different hazardous jobs. I mean, we conducted a study in which we trained people that are, you know, high-pole linemen or people that work in the tops of big, tall buildings. And we substantially reduce our accident rates, have accidents about half as often. And, and uh, we've trained uh, people that are at the highest performance levels in the, in the universe, and they still get better. So one of our the tra- uh, train- trainees is Tom Brady. Tom Brady's a regular user of our brain training programs. His performance improved at the age of 40 when he trained. He said also, that, that his, with training, he no longer made errors in the relay of plays from the coach to the team. He stopped making errors. Before then, whenever he made an error in translating these eight or nine two-syllable word strings of instructions out to the players on his team, the coach would yell at him and be real mad at him, and the play would be busted, and he'd, he said, That's, don't do that anymore. We trained Harry Kane, the guy that won the most valuable player in the, in the World Cup in the last, on the, on the, on the Tottenham Hotspurs, this great British soccer player. Quite a large number of great athletes have been trained, for example, using these. Trained people in sort of in the high 
and in business. So everybody's improvable. That's an important thing to understand. Everybody's improvable. I don't care who you are. You can be driven to a higher performance level, whatever is important to you. And think of the implication of that in your job or in your life. Why wouldn't you be the best that you could be at what you're doing if you could be improved, better at it without a tremendous amount of effort? How about genetics? Don't scientists believe that our genetic endowments substantially determine our oh, human so intelligence? You, you had to bring genetics in there. Guys, <laughs> of course, they are important. And I think one of the really important things that's come in the science is a rebalancing of the playing field. Because basically we've gone from an era in which we thought that genetics were dominating how we should think about our life and our potential. Again, in a sense, it's, it's, it's where we were 50 years ago or 45 years ago, when we thought that when you looked at that kid, when that kid was six and they showed up at school, you could give, the, give them an IQ test. And that IQ was their IQ for life, not improvable. There's still lots of people out there in the world that believe that IQ is immutable. 50% of the variation of IQ is accounted for by brain speed. Half of it is. Everybody in this room, I could probably just about the majority of you, I could double your brain speed by training you. So to think of these things as being immutable, so that's not to say that genetics can't get in the way or don't get in the way a hell of a lot of lives. But if you have a genetic challenge, you almost always still have a highly plastic brain. The fact that you've evolved to this point in life and you've developed all of these skills and ability and do all of this stuff means that you're, things are working pretty good up there. So put an argument in for yourself. <laughs> Give yourself a little extra brain exercise in whatever you do. Just take your brain health more seriously if you have a burden that is identified as genetic. Okay, one last question from here. You talked about living life to the advantage of your brain. Can you give us a few pointers about how people like the folks in our audience might actually do that? Well, that's a hard question, and uh, my book is about that. But I just say, yeah, and if you buy that book, it's really cheap, really, honestly. It's a, it's a tremendous bargain. No, I just want to say a few things about it. The first thing is, is, is that, you know, a lot of times in an adult life, in a modern life, uh, in a sense we withdraw from the physical world that we live in, and we become a kind of living zombie out there in it. And, uh, you know, I see this every day on my morning walk. I walk in the, in the city with my dog, and I pass people on the street, and I see that they're completely disengaged within themselves, and they're no longer paying attention they're, no longer, they're not, no longer seeking the surprise or looking at anything except inward in themselves. And this is not enough. Basically, be mindful. Follow the Buddhist advice. Connect with the world again. Pay attention to the details and wonders. Always look for the surprise. Always pay attention to what you see out there. When you move across the landscape, always think about reconstructing it when you, when you land somewhere. And say, well, can I reconstruct that in my life? What were the good things I saw out there? Relive it. One of the most important things that we do is become masters of the world we live in. Most people have lost the mastery of the world they live in. They throw it away. And get out there in the wider world where the world is really surprising. You know, one of the things I really hate to see are people that retreat 
saying, well, I can no longer do that. That's just too difficult. That's too complicated. You know what? And something might go wrong. Well, hell, when things go wrong, that means you're suddenly, for the first time in a while, maybe really having fun, right? If you just have the right attitude about it, right? It means you have to solve a problem as opposed to have every problem solved by someone else in front of you. So one of the things is just be engaged in the world again. When you live, always think about what you're doing. Not from the point of view, I'm really glad I can still do this, but always put a little tension in, could I be better at this? Think about a life of continuous learning. And by that I mean not just all of those things you're good at or just reading another book. I strongly recommend you continue to read books. Continue to want to load your encyclopedia with information, of course. But you also want to acquire continuous new ability. Every time you acquire a new skill, take up a new form of art or a new form of whatever, a new, a new interest. Maybe you've never gone to the opera. Well, go there and be a, actually learn about it. Actually listen. Take it seriously. Learn something. Be a better person for it. And uh, maybe you'll hear something, see something absolutely wonderful. It happens about every fifth or sixth opera I've gone to. <laughs> but the point is, is that live life again as if you're a child. Think about a life of continuous acquisition of, of ability and continuous advance. And you'll be the better for it. And then finally, I just have to say, try to live life joyfully. Try to live life as a positive force in the world. God knows there's enough negative forces in the world. It doesn't need you as another one. But besides that, it's good for you. So be a positive force in the world. I strongly recommend that. Now I could add a lot of things to this list. Uh, I'll just say one more thing. Think about operations at speed. I think about, I can do this, but I could do it a little faster and a little sharper. Operations at speed. Oh, it looks like we have quite a few questions here. We, we have and if I were to just take, dozens not, of questions. Oh. Um, so I would like to start with the one. What are the supporting statistics? Oh, man, statistics. This is going to be hard. Well, people want the proof. Oh. <laughs> Well, see, I did, at my usual talk, I give, I, it was full of images, and it has all kinds of charts and graphs and, and bars of, of showing the levels of statistical significance. Okay, I just say the, the, the science behind this, this, what I'm talking about, is massive. It's massive. So there's, there, there's a very, very large number of studies that support what I'm talking about in a general sense. Now, when, when we get down to any specific issue, of course, we have to talk about the details of the science and what actually was done and so on and so forth. So it gets complicated. So it's hard to talk about. There are hundreds of thousands of papers. If you go to a, a meeting of the societies that relate to brain science, as about half of the talks that you would hear or half of the presentation you hear relate in some way or another to the dynamic characteristics of the brain, the functional brain. So this is a massively studied subject. There are thousands of reviews written about the processes that control brain change. Many, many books written. In fact, there's too damn much information. (laughs) There's so much information that probably no one in the world actually understands it all. I'm just the only one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, just one (laughs) lesson. In my book, as an example, I try to cite, not in the book itself, because it's too complicated, I try to cite a website cite papers that 
relate to it. And then in places like where, 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 where our software tools are, we try to cite all papers that relate to trials. So there have been roughly 150 trials that are control trials that have been conducted using the training programs that we've created to help people. So you could, you could look at, at any of those trials and look at what the, the population, what the scientists actually did. There's more than, I don't know, maybe 300 trials now underway using this, these programs. So these, in all different places in the world. So there's a massive amount of evidence that show that these things are effective. There's also contrarians, you should know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, uh, we could talk about that. That would be a subject of another lecture. <laughs> Why they're so screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> then there is about half a dozen of questions on what a 40-year-old, a 60-year-old, <laughs> um, a, a person with early child trauma, yeah. uh, someone with Asperger's, right. uh, someone uh, who can have addiction to right. alcohol or something else, someone who already has active dementia, uh, what can they do? Can they use their brain plasticity to improve? And, and the answer is, of course, they can, all of these people can to their advantage. Now, uh, it's a little bit complicated because there, there are two general ways that we approach it in practical terms. First of all, there's a general issue of brain health. And then there are specific distortions that occur in the brain of someone that has a, a specific clinical indication, and that's what makes them different. So a, a person that's anxious is not identical in every way with a person that's schizophrenic. It's not identical in every way with a person that has, uh, is, uh, has an alcohol abuse problem. Or is not a, but there's an overlap in their characteristics that relate to the core issues of brain health. And then there are things that are specific to their condition. So the tools that are required to attack it or to address it with greatest power. And commonly they require an integration of a participation of a of talk therapist, a, a trained uh, a psychotherapist or a trained psychologist that, that has things to contribute necessarily because the things that might have led the person into the ditch are so idiocratic, so individual to them that they have to be addressed in an intelligent and individuated way. So commonly there's a, there, it ha- there has to be a partnership in the most effective way to drive the brain back in a corrective direction that comes between a, an informed psychologist and, uh, and the kind of brain training strategies that we would advise. But absolutely, every one of these is a call to action. I might say, you don't need this as a, a general call to action. All you need to do is be alive. Now let me just tell you about another simple experiment. A colleague of mine, in, uh, his name is Xiaoming Zhou. He's a professor in Shanghai at the East China Normal University. I did a very simple experiment. As he took animals and he trained them in the prime of life. These animals were healthy, really great, good shape, everything's great, right? Trained them in the prime of life. And then uh, and, uh, he looked immediately after he trained them in the prime of life and everything was better. All 30 indices were better. And then he looked at them when they're expected to die. And the animals expected to die in a month or so, but these animals, unlike their untrained co- uh, uh, Controls weren't about to die. They were still very vigorous and healthy. 
And so he looked in their brain at these 30 characteristics, and he compared them with the animals that weren't trained. And he saw a dramatic difference. Why? Because they had cognitive reserve. When he advanced their brain health when they were in the prime of life, by basically engaging them, this absolutely relates to the question about the person that has a lousy early life. Get thee to working on exercising your brain and improving your brain in ways that improve your prove your, yourself and get you back up there and leapfrog over all those people that aren't paying any attention to their brain. I strongly recommend that. So the point is, is that you can inject cognitive reserve at any age by, taking the, by exercising your brain in the appropriate ways. I strongly recommend everybody do that. So in a sense, this is a kind of universal medicine. But then when you get to the specifics of the condition, if I had someone that was craving alcohol and every time they thought about Getting a drink, I thought, I, no, I have to reduce the craving. And that's a com- more complicated business. I have to do things in training that are specific to that distortion in the brain. We've created tools to do lots of these things, including that, and can reduce craving by using them. But it requires a specific set of tools for each clinical indication. Now, I would just want to say one last thing about this. If you look at somebody that has something like a major depressive disorder, you look at the brain, you see they have six or seven big distortions. What does the, what does the drug do? The drug corrects one of the distortions. And that's a downregulation of, of one of the neurotransmitters that controls the dimmer switch. Dimmer switch is down low in the depressed person. They're, and so you turn the lights up. And if they have, if it has enough of an effect, they get up out of there up out of their chair, go out the front door, and they live life again. And there's a broad self-correction of the other things that basically restores them to life, if they're lucky. And now there's a completely different strategy. The psychologist has the same person. And they say, well, we got to deal with you not being so depressed. Every time you feel a little bit depressed, turn it up a notch. Turn it up a notch, turn it up a notch, turn it up a notch, turn it up a notch. And let's deal a little bit with the specifics of why you're depressed. These bad things happen. Let's talk. Let's figure out how we can get rid of those and weaken them and your attention to them and how important they are. They're not that important. The psychologist takes a completely different strategy. And if I look in the brain after treatment A or treatment B, I see changes. I see other things that aren't changed because they're unaddressed in the therapy. If you're lucky enough and get out in life and do enough in life, they'll self-correct substantially. But about half the time they don't. That's called a relapse. Now, actually, all of those seven things are correctable. And there will come a time, not so many years from now, when we understand that and we apply that in medical treatment of a condition like this. We correct all seven, because we can. And that would apply to all of these conditions that you described. And that's called a cure. If you really corrected everything, you could call it a cure. So, next interesting question. Is brain a muscle? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, it's a lot like a muscle. Well, think about it this way. If I exercise physically and I'm really swift and I'm a, I, have, I, I have lots of stamina now because I've been exercising and I, I'm very agile, maybe I'm very have great control in whatever sport I'm into or whatever, I, who's advantaged by it? Uh, 
Well, everything that contributes to your physical activity is advantage. You know, your cardiovascular health is improved. Your, your pulmonary health is improved. Your internal organs are all, your autonomic nervous system is upregulated. Everything about you is healthier, you could say, inside. Actually, your brain is improved too, by the way. And remember, your brain is controlling all of that action. So if that physical activity actually, actually involves brain engagement, and you actually are engaging your brain so to improve the way you're controlling yourself, you've also been exercising your brain directly. That's a very good way to get that physical exercise. But back to the physical exercise and, and, and how you, that relates to the brain. The brain is just like this. That is to say, if you exercise it, everything inside gets stronger, and lots of things outside get stronger. So an example is, uh, among, on that list of 30 things that we looked at are things that directly relate to the organic health of the brain. For example, the control of the vascularization to all of those places where the brain is more active. The brain has this wonderful uh, feed-as-needed strategy where where there's a lot of electrical activity, the brain activity signals, drives signal to the vasculature and it releases nutrients and oxygen to just to that area. And when the brain is really vigorous and active and healthy, that's a very strong process. It's immediate, immediately there, just like a well-exercised body immediately, you're storing myoglobin and you have all kinds of energy resources basically to support your physical activities. The same sort of strategy. The brain in all kinds of ways is changing physically in ways that, that relate to its defending itself by exercising. When the brain is really healthy, it's really good at defending itself. It doesn't let those uh, foreign agents enter the brain tissue and get covered with amyloid to generate those little amyloid bodies that are like little like a little grenade's going off in your brain. So in a whole variety of ways, when you exercise your brain, everything about the physical brain, the organic brain, is strengthened together. And in the same way, these changes reflect into the body. Remember that the brain is controlling. It actually is directly connecting, not just powerfully through the autonomic, indirectly through the autonomic system, but directly connecting, projecting to all of the organs of the body. And it's influencing their integrity and health. So I said earlier, uh, I'm way off the subject, but I'm going to finish this thought because I'm having, I'm having fun with it. Uh, I said earlier, we train a brain of an animal near the end of life, expected to die in a month, and it's really in bad shape. And, uh, and, 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 and uh, what we see is that the animal is not, it's obviously not close to death anymore. I mean, it's flickerous. He's trying to bite us. He's just full of it. This is a... And so we asked the question, I have a wonderful young collaborator who's a, who's a neurologist from Montreal. I say, well, let's just see if we keep this animal alive, how long he'll live, whether he will die in a month or will he, we've extended his life. So we kept the animal around, and we found that by training him for a month near the end of life, his lifespan was extended on the average by 40%. So my Montreal colleague went back to Montreal and initiated trials in which he's now, instead of just training the animal and saying, well, how long will the animal live? He continues to train the animal. So he's doing this episodically. About every three months, he trains the animal again, trains him again, trains him again. And he hasn't complete, concluded the experiment yet because all of the animals haven't died. <laughs> So, 
That's another way of saying that the brain, of course, just we say, we, we, we all understand that physical exercise is good for your brain for two reasons. It's good for your brain directly, has direct impacts on the brain. It's also good for your brain because you want to have a body to move around and operate in the world, right? Because that's how you, one of the important ways you engage your brain. But the second thing that's just as important or even more important is that having a healthy brain is important for your body, for your physical health. So, you know, nobody, you we have to stop thinking about medicine above the neck and medicine below the neck. Obviously, the separation is artificial, right? That's another way of answering a question that wasn't asked. <laughs> so, um, last question uh, Last question of more practical nature. Do you have any recommendations on a diet? And then we'll get oh, the diet. philosophical yeah. ones. This is, a really, this is a really important thing. Cause I, I haven't talked about this at all. And I, there's a lot of other things I haven't talked about that you should think about doing or could think about doing. And they all relate to the... First of all, people should absolutely be at, paying attention to their physical circumstances of their life. They should absolutely be attention to making sure they aggressively deal with infectious illness and, and, uh, and not allow to have a chronic nasal infection go on for a year and not allow the, uh, not to be, try to not be in the presence of mold spores in a continuous nature and trying to, try to deal with a tick bite and a whole bunch of other things like that. Uh, because all of those things relate to safe or safely sustaining your brain health. But also, obviously, diet is important. And, and also, chemical exposures and expo- environmental exposures are important. So just to say one th- thing about that. Uh, Alzheimer, when he originally described the pathology of the brain that, that, that was named for, for him in the early part of the 20th century, struggled to find four or five other patients that were like the patient that he originally described. Alzheimer's was operating in, the, in, the Rhineland, in Rhineland, Germany, in a really pretty densely populated area of Europe, and he couldn't find these patients. They were hard to find. And in fact, we really didn't identify Alzheimer's disease as much of a problem. It wasn't really identified as a significant epidemiological problem until the second half of the 20th century. It's clearly on the rise and has been continuously rising in incidence across the latter half of the century. Well, we've been changing our physical environments a lot across this period, and we've been changing our diet a lot. You know, we've gone from having a diet that's uh, largely vegetable-related to a diet that's largely fat and meat-loaded across this period on the statistical average. And you can look at populations in, in countries in which there's less fat. One of the classic uh, examples is in uh, Nigeria, as composed to the... You wouldn't think that people in Nigeria would have less Alzheimer's disease than in the U.S., instinctively. And actually, there's a higher incidence of bad genes that favor you developing Alzheimer's disease in Nigeria than there is in the U.S. But Alzheimer's disease is a relative rarity in Nigeria. And there's two big differences if you're the average Nigerian citizen. One is in lifestyle. You're never really ever allowed to withdraw from life and start taking it easy and just fooling around in a life of leisure. That's one difference. You're always engaged in a sense neurologically in the, with the real world. And the diet is different. The diet, diet is substantially not meat-loaded. 
and our diet is. And in countries in which the increase of the, in consumption of meat have occurred across decades, Alzheimer's disease increases in incidence. Diet clearly is a factor. So one of the things to think about is what is it about your, your life and your diet? What is it about your environment that you can change? I'm actually writing another book about this. It's, it's, uh, the book is uh, going to be is titled, tentatively, Brain Dead. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be published in, a, in a, about two months. And I have a lot of, a lot of uh, I'm tempted to, to treat this, this subject in a serious way. But there are a lot of good things that you can read that relate to uh, guidance and diet and guidance in how you think about your physical environment and health. So brain health is more than just thinking about exercising your brain. I think that's the center core of it. But you also have to think about how you feed your brain and feed your body. And you also think about what kind of world you're actually living in and how contaminated it is and how maybe you can improve it without going out in the woods and living under the trees. <laughs> Which sometimes I think would be a really good idea, but <laughs> they won't let me. <laughs> so, um, two, uh, I think, connected questions. You said that brain gradually, gradually declines right. in Western societies. Did you make the Western societies caveat because that's where studies have dominated or because there is something different in other places and countries? You start answering that question. And then the second related, how does meditation or mindfulness right. affect the brain? Well, first of all, there's a large body of evidence that shows that mindfulness uh, has positive and significant impacts on the brain. And especially if you're anxious or you're, 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 you're subject to stress and rea- overreacting to stress, it's a very healthy thing for you to do. Uh, the sort, some of the brain exercises that we do, that we've created, we've actually tried to compare the impacts they have in the brain because what we're trying to do is to, to duplicate the effects that you see in changing it as a consequence of mindfulness. The only reason to do that is because every, it's, some people struggled to get into mindfulness exercises. But it's a highly recommended thing to do, especially if, you, if you're if your life is governed by anxieties and, and worries and nervousness and calm yourself down, it's really effective. And, it, and, and actually, in all kinds of ways, it has strong positive impacts on brain health. So it's a highly recommended thing to do. And again, the mindful in the sense of engaging yourself with the, with the world around you and really connecting with it again. You know, smell the damn flower. Appreciate how beautiful it is. You know, just get, uh, you know, be listening for the insect and, uh, and, and be, part of, be part of the world again. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I get endless pleasure out, out of it myself. And uh, once you get into the habit of it, the world is just full of fabulous stuff. So if you just think about yourself as being a kid again, this is what I, re- I highly recommend now, I forgot your first question. <laughs> uh, because so it wasn't that was particularly Western, Western lifestyle, and yeah. is it because it's detected more, or is it because our lifestyle is just... Well, you know, uh, I'm really worried about, uh, about how we are culturally evolving. And uh, what I'm really worried about is... Uh, the, the way it's driving us out of the real world. 
I'm worried when I see my grandchildren, who are wonderful, lively children, uh, spend so much of their time in, a, in an unreal world and environment. You know, in effect, we've done everything we can do to, to, to remove ourselves from the direct physical environment that we live in. We've paved the damn world. And that's another way of saying that every time we step down on the ground, we don't have to worry about any uncertainty in our footfall or make any adjustment in our vision or in our, in our vestibular apparatus, which we, in natural world we did thousands and thousands and thousands of times a week. Now think about how much brain exercise we've deprived ourselves of. And that's just one of a thousand things that we've done as we, as we carry, move ourselves around the surface of the planet. Uh, uh, not too far from now, in a little capsule, uh, and uh, not engaged in any other way except in, with, internally within our mind. I think this is massively unhelpful. And I think we're going to generate a big harvest from it. And I think it's going to be, there are good things about it, Good thing about about engaging in all of this fast moving stuff, speed in the brain and operations has, has a lot of good in it. But the way we're withdrawing from the physical world and falling from all of these more subtle distinctions about things, one of my a simple examples of this is that you can find almost any severely autistic child, and you can show them even a very advanced computer game, and they'll master it. I worked for a while in creating uh, training programs for autistic children. I had several graduate students that were working in these exercises, training strategies. And uh, we'd put little uh, software uh, cues in the software, so we'd go into the software and manipulate. Well, autistic kids always found them. And they always screwed up the software, because they knew they'd (laughs) find them right away and they'd start playing with them. I mean, they're amazing in their ability to operate. they stand up and turn around, and they're autistic. Yeah. So a kid can operate wonderfully under conditions in which the world is the world is rule bound, but in a real world full of surprises, full of its com- natural complexities, they can struggle. Mm-hmm. And we need to be masters at dealing with the real world. We need to be masters of the real world, and not some little artificial fake world where everything is constructed and by by the rules of the software designer. So anyway. Okay. Um, next question. Is brain plasticity still bidirectional in cases of traumatic, a traumatic brain injury or multiple sclerosis? If so, then... Yeah, how? you can't get rid of it because it's inherent in the processes. And uh, uh, it's, it is still bidirectional. Of course, you mostly want to, and, and uh, we're not hardly ever trying to drive it in a negative direction. Uh, you know, 99.9% of the time, we're trying to drive it in an improving and refining direction. And that, uh, so what happens in a condition like multiple sclerosis is that multiple sclerosis compromises what's called a blood-brain barrier, and agents from blood leak into the tissues of the brain. The tissues of the brain are excitable, and they're affected by this, and actually they become noisier. And because when they become noisier, it's as if you're basically changing the, the noise conditions in the brain trying to make a decision what just happened. And it basically has to take longer, it has to slow down to still get the answer right and sustain control. And so you have to do two things in recovering a condition like this or help the person. You want to, you want to reseal that barrier 
so that agents from blood can no longer leak into the tissues of the brain, and you want to recover that speed and that operational power again. All of that, all of, in most multiple sclerosis patients, that is substantially achievable. Uh, but uh, I forgot the first uh, clinical indication you mentioned. <laughs> Yeah, so this is traumatic, traumatic, oh, brain, traumatic injury. brain injury. Oh, traumatic brain injury. Yeah, in traumatic brain injury, you know, it's, it's complicated because uh, there, there's an incredible variety of ways that the brain can be physically injured and the injury, injury can destroy tissue to a very dramatic uh, differential degree or it can, it can disturb the damage functionality in all kinds of ways depending on the nature of the injury. A blast injury is very different from a concussion. It's very different from... A, a, a direct physical injury of the brain and so forth. But the brain is always plastic. And basically, one of the reasons I brought up negative plasticity is because there can be changes in plasticity that are destructive in recovery. So a simple example is, is that uh, natural instinct is saying, I'm really struggling to use this. I was right-handed, and now I can hardly control this at all. And the physical therapy might focus on, well, making most of it. Let's Maybe you can grab something and hold it and drink it. And so now you have an arm that is being used in an overpracticed way, controlling itself largely, let's say, from the shoulder. Now I look in the brain, and what I can do is differentially exaggerate it in a way that burns in uh, what will be almost certainly long-term distorted movement of the arm. Same thing happens in cerebral palsy. I'm working hard to basically recover the, and elaborate the movement of cerebral palsy, but if I just say, all I'm going to do is I'm going to try to make this kid more functional, and I'm going to try to help them recover, so I don't care if they move their whole body to do this. What I do is I train the brain, the brain's plastic, to, to always generate this distorted movement. It's harder to sit back and say, well, what, how do I have to reconstruct the, the recovery of this movement so that it's natural? That might mean I have to start with training the core, Maybe training, you know, I might, might have to go through a lot more complicated progression. But uh, I think increasingly understanding these processes and understanding the nature of positive and negative plasticity, we're understanding how to control these changes so that we get, we move on a path in which we can make a true correction. Okay, we're allowed one more question. So the last question is. What is your position on brain-stimulating devices? What is my position? Brain st- yeah, stimulating. stimulating devices, like deep brain stimulation. Oh, my position on brain stimulation devices, okay. Uh, it's a mixed bag. Uh, so it's a little bit complicated. I don't want to, first of all, I want to say that brain stimulation devices, there are a category of devices that are, that are now in the, in the marketplace. And I don't want to say too much about things that I don't, you know, not completely familiar about every aspect of the literature. Uh, I think one of the concerns is that brain stimulation by itself is a relatively uncontrolled, uncontrolled engagement of circuits in the brain that can have both a negative and a positive impact. Now, the positive impact is that if you stimulate regions in the brain, for, for example, there are a whole variety of uses for it. Uh, one, one thing it does is it does, it, it does the equivalent of sort of turning on the lights in a way that enables change. Or it actually degrades uh, the way the brain is representing information 
and and once it's degraded, basically you can, in a sense, almost restart the rehabilitation and, and generate change in a way that you couldn't generate it before, and so forth. It's an incredibly complicated uh, uh, therapeutic picture. I think it's misused as often as it is positively used. I think it's a rapidly evolving technology, and I think there will be practical uses for it. I think many of the things that are now being done with it can be done with training, or can be done with simpler forms of brain engagement that don't require direct brain stimulation. Now, an example of that is, is that one of my former students, who's a professor at the University of Texas in Dallas, his name is Michael Kilgard, has done a beautiful set of experiments in which he's engaged the same machinery of the brain that controls attention and that modulates plasticity by stimulating the vagus nerve and in controlled conditions in which, and what that does, first of all, it's relatively innocuous, and the vagus nerve has backward projections that go to two of the main nuclei that are controlling plasticity. So he's been taking relatively hopeless stroke patients, and he's been training them relatively rapidly to have dramatic recovery by strengthening the plastic changes by this artificial strategy. And even when they don't feel like participating or, or they have trouble being motivated to participate, he could artificially drive these positive changes in their brain. And he and I are actually have been talking about collaborating in this pro project and we're going to try to wake up people that can't respond at all using this strategy. So I, th I think the real answer to the question is, is that I don't know enough about everything that's being done to be a critic of it. I know some things that are being done are very promising potentially very useful, and I also think there's a lot of exaggeration, and, and, uh, and people should always look to the research that supports it with a critical eye before you, uh, before you sign up for something like that. Hello. I am Bill Grant, a member of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and the chair of this program. I'd like to thank uh, Tamara Gurin for organizing this program and asking the uh, questions from the audience. We thank Dr. Uh, Michael Merzenich for his comments here today. We also thank our audiences here as well as those listening to this recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating more than 117 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. And